Take your Bible and open them tonight to Psalm 102, the 102nd Psalm, Psalm 102. We'll begin reading in verse 1, Psalm 102, verse 1. Let's all hear God's inspired, infallible, and all-sufficient Word. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come unto thee. Hide not thy face from me in the day when I am in trouble. Incline thine ear unto me in the day when I call, answer me speedily. For my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones are burned as an hearth. My heart is smitten and withered like grass, so that I forget to eat my bread. By reason of the voice of my groaning, my bones cleave to my skin. I am like a pelican of the wilderness. I am like an owl of the desert. I watch, and am as a sparrow alone upon the housetop. Mine enemies reproach me all the day, and they that are mad against me are sworn against me. For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping because of thine indignation and thy wrath. For thou hast lifted me up and cast me down. My days are like a shadow that declineth, and I am withered like grass. But thou, O Lord, shalt endure forever, and thy remembrance unto all generations. Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion, for the time to favor her, yea, the set time is come. For thy servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. So the heathen shall fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth thy glory. When the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. He will regard the prayer of the destitute and not despise their prayer. This shall be written for the generation to come. And the people which shall be created shall praise the Lord. For he looked down from the height of his sanctuary. From heaven did the Lord behold the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to loose those that are appointed to death, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem when the people are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. And the Lord will add his blessing to the reading from his word for his name's sake. As we bow our heads for a moment, we need the Lord. Let's call upon him. Our God and Father, we approach the throne again now because we do need thee. We are not ashamed to come, Lord, and plead with thee for the outpouring of grace and mercy upon us, that thou wilt hear the prayers of thy people, and thou wilt come tonight and do exceeding abundantly above all that we have asked or thought. Lord, leave us not to ourselves. Leave not thy servant to stand behind the sacred desk in his own strength, for he has none, and thou knowest that. Leave not thy people, Lord, to be sermon tasters and hearers only. And Lord, come thou thyself by thy spirit and take the truth. Burn it into our souls, we pray. Fill our minds with that which will expose the lies and drive them away. Sanctify us once again through thy truth. May this be a word tonight in season for thy flock here. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. 
While the identity of the author of this psalm is unknown, its preface may give us some light. A prayer of the afflicted, when he is overwhelmed and pours out his complaint before the Lord. I say that preface may give us some light because for many centuries there has been a difference of opinion among commentators about the source of the affliction that was overwhelming the heart of this psalmist. There are really three predominant views that have come to the fore, and each view, no surprise, suggests a different author and a different cause for the affliction. Some believe that Psalm 102 was written after Ezra returned to Jerusalem from Babylonian captivity in order to rebuild the temple. If that's the case, the source of his affliction would be the state, the sad state of things in Jerusalem when he went back. The poverty, the rubbish, the devastation, that which had moved Nehemiah to sit down and weep. If, if that's true, the true setting of this psalm, then it was probably written by Nehemiah, Ezra, or one of their contemporaries. A second opinion holds that this psalm was written during the captivity, but near its close. Calvin states that this prayer seems to have been dictated to the faithful when they were languishing in captivity in Babylon. That's Calvin's view. If that's the case, then this complaint before the Lord was in view of all the sorrows of their captivity. And the psalmist is not speaking so much of an individual and personal troubles, but speaks as one who's representing the people as one who sighed for God to deliver them and return them back to their own land. If that's the case, it could be, it could be Daniel that would have been the author of this particular psalm who understood by the writings of Jeremiah that the time of their captivity was coming to an end. The third view is that Psalm 102 was written by David and if, if that is the case, it has no, no national historic occasion that prompted him to write it, but the psalm would be mainly prophetic of the church lamenting her spiritual desolation and the coming of the Messiah to bring deliverance to the captives. That this psalm has a definite messianic application is seen from the fact that the Apostle Paul quotes from this psalm, verses 22 through 27, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, and applies them directly to Christ in order to prove that Christ is superior to the angels. But whatever view you decide to take of the psalm, if those great giants have been arguing for centuries about exactly what was the surrounding circumstances, whatever view you decide to take of the psalm, the basic truths that it teaches are the same. Whether it was Ezra lamenting over what he saw when he came back to the city of God, to Zion, to Jerusalem, whether it was Daniel lamenting over the Jews in captivity and longing for the restoration of these people to their land again, or whether it was David through the prophetic voice that he often used in his psalms, lamenting over the state of things in the church and prophesying of Christ's coming, the bottom line is that it's all one in the same. There are truths here that transcend the historical and prophetical context, truths that the church must learn and learn well, no matter what day she finds herself in. And that fact right there makes this psalm very pertinent to the church of Christ today 
to our own local church here and to you personally if you belong to the body of Christ. I want to draw your attention to the middle verses of the psalm this evening, and I think you'll see that they make for the centerpiece of the entire psalm. Verse 13, Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion, for the time to favor her, yea, the set time is come. For thy servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. From those two verses, I want to speak to you this evening on the subject of God's message to a languishing church. God's message to a languishing church. I want to look at the picture of a languishing church from these two verses and then go on to look at the prayer for the languishing church and then look at the prospect for the languishing church. So let's, let's just unpack those two verses. Let's get into it and see what God's message is to a languishing church, no matter what day that church is found in. First, the picture of the languishing church. The words of my text indicate that the psalmist anticipated a time when God was about to favor Zion. It's obvious then that the present time in which the psalmist was writing, God was not favoring Zion. It was clear. You can look at what was going, regardless of what view you take, looking at the circumstances, it was very apparent that God was not actively favoring Zion. It was not a season when God was showing them His power. That doesn't mean, to quote another psalmist, that God had cast off His people forever because He wasn't favoring them at the present time. It didn't mean that He had forgotten to be gracious or that He had, even in anger, shut up His tender mercies. That's often what the Lord's people wrongly conclude, yours truly included, when the church or their own souls are in a state of languishing, in a state of spiritual decline, when the Lord does not appear to be blessing them or blessing His work. The conclusion is, uh, as Asaph, God has forgotten to be gracious. He's in anger, shut up His tender mercies. They conclude that God has abandoned them because of their sin, and they will never again enjoy the sunshine of His face. They'll never again know the hand of God's blessing upon their life. They'll never experience again the power of the Lord in the place of prayer. They consign themselves to a life of defeat and discouragement and uselessness. Now, there's no doubt that the psalmist is deeply, deeply affected by the state of things in his own heart. He says he's overwhelmed, completely overwhelmed in his soul. I was struck with the comments of John Gill, 18th century Baptist preacher, predecessor to C.H. Spurgeon in London. He makes this comment just in the preface of the psalm, his comments touching the preface. He said it describes the individual believer when he is, and I quote now, pressed with the burden of sin without a view of pardon. Pressed with shame and sorrow for it. Ready to faint and sink under afflictions, and at the same time is attended with much darkness and unbelieving frames of soul. Concerning his trials and afflictions, especially concerning the badness and haughtiness of his heart, the hardness of it, being so unaffected with providences and under the word and at the ordinances, concerning his leanness, barrenness, 
and unfruitfulness under the means of grace, his lukewarmness and indifference, his deadness and dullness in duty, his unbelief, distrust, and dejection of mind. I thought that such a graphic picture of a languishing believer. One who is in spiritual decline. Nothing seems to faze him. Nothing touches him. He goes about in sadness and dejection and, and unbelief, misery. Joy is gone. Power is gone. How the heart of the child of God that has experienced many what Spurgeon called an elactic gale understands well those words of John Gill. It's like it's autobiographical. And Gill could only write that because he himself had been there and done that. But as I said, we're not looking so much at the individual believer from this psalm, but a languishing church, because the text that we're dealing with speaks of Zion needing a time of God's favor and mercy. Zion, Jerusalem, the work of God, the people of God. But that being so, the description of a believer who is in spiritual decline could well be applied to a church that is languishing. When the church of Christ is languishing, there is a leanness, a barrenness, and an unfruitfulness under the means of grace. For all of the preaching, for all the teaching, for all the praying, for all the attendance at the house of God, the soul cries out of the church, Oh, my leanness, my leanness. Where is the blessedness? Because all you see is barrenness. Such a state, the church, in that languishing condition, is going to be marked by lukewarmness. Not, not zealous, not hot, not eager. No, not, not completely cold and indifferent to the Lord and the things of God. Still the interest is there. But it's a lukewarmness. An indifference. There comes this, this deadness. And dullness in duty. Sing the songs, but it's not singing them from the heart. It's just going through the motions. Because if, if it wasn't the case, you'd find yourself singing to the day when there is no church service. The songs of Zion would be on your heart. Not whistling or humming or singing the songs of the world, but the songs of Zion. But when the church is languishing, the Lord's people aren't doing that. Deadness and dullness and duty. You read your Bible, but that's all that it is. You pray, but it's the duty. There's no delight in it. There's no delight in seeking the face of God. There's no delight in getting to the house of God. It's just duty. That's where I'm supposed to be. It's not anything near what David said. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. No, any old excuse will do. Any old excuse will do. To avoid that which is the believer's duty. Then there's this unbelief, this, this distrust. It's, it's almost as if faith has been brought into shackles. 
when there is a liveliness and, and a flourishing, then you're quite ready and willing to lay hold of any promise the Lord will give you and, and plead it with urgency at the throne and expect the Lord to work. But when, when there is a languishing situation, then you really don't expect the Lord to work. You don't. Because unbelief is running amok in the soul. And you distrust God. Because that's what it is. I'm not trusting God to do what he said he would do. That's going to bring on its own darkness, its own despondency, its own dejection of soul. Because you can't live in any kind of expectation, any kind of, of joy and peace of mind when that's where the soul is living. Languishing. There won't be a whole lot of success in the preaching of the gospel. And I mean two things. I mean few conversions when the church is languishing, all you'd have to do is read a bit of church history and you find what the church is like when she's not languishing and you'll see the souls coming in by the droves. But that is lost. And then there's, because of that languishing spirit Christians are found living very worldly lives and they don't even blink an eye it's just the norm it's what's acceptable that's the picture of a languishing church and I would submit to you that's the picture of the church in America at the present hour. It's always exceptions. But by and large, at least from my vantage point, from what I see, what I read, what I hear, this is where we are. A languishing church. The need, therefore, for God to favor Zion, to favor the church when she is in such a condition is very great because it has far-reaching ramifications. When the church languishes from the preacher down to the boy or girl in the pew, when the church languishes it's going to have an adverse effect upon our souls. The psalmist is feeling the effects that the state of things in Jerusalem is having upon him. And it's not pleasant. I mean, he's just being honest. He's, he's, he's just reporting what he's seeing. It will adversely, when the church is languishing, it will affect our witness in whatever town the Lord places a church. There will be a lack of power with men. He, he, he contrasts this in verse 15. When the Lord would visit Zion, he says, the heathen shall fear. It's going to have an effect upon the heathen, the unbelievers, the pagans, the idolaters. When God favors Zion and brings her out of that languishing state, it's going to affect the lost. And that means our lives are going to affect the lost when we're brought out of a languishing state. When the lukewarmness goes and the deadness disappears and there's liveliness, spiritual fruitfulness. When the church of Christ is languishing, it will have a detrimental effect upon the nation. Because the church is the salt of the earth. It is the light of the world. 
And when the salt loses its saltiness, it doesn't have much effect upon the ungodly in preserving the advancement of evil. When the light is barely burning and the lamp is sputtering and flickering because there's so little oil of the Holy Spirit in the life, then it's not going to shine very brightly into a dark world. So what do we expect? It would be very incongruous for us to think that when a church is languishing like that, that there's just, it can go on and on and on as normal. It's just not going to happen. And when the church is languishing, it will bring reproach upon the name of Christ, the name of God. It's a picture. It's not a pleasant one. It's not one that you would just like to sit down and think about, because there's a whole, a whole lot more that could be said. Someone gave me a, a booklet when I was up in, we were up in Malvern this last weekend, a sermon that Paul Washer preached in Atlanta back in 2008, 10 indictments against the church. And he was really dead on in every one of them. Every one of them just hit the spot. He was describing the church in this land presently. No, it's not pleasant. But do you really want to turn a blind eye to it? Would you want to turn a blind eye to one of your children that was plagued with some disease that was just eating away at their strength in life? Would you want to turn a blind eye to it as ugly as it may be? As awful as the symptoms that you're seeing may be, you would not want to turn a blind eye to that child because you love that child, right? And would we want to turn a blind eye to the church of Christ that is languishing? And ignore it and say, well, it's not really that bad. And it is. Well, you say, well, that's just because you have this little work here. And it seems to be languishing, you think like this. Oh, no. No. There's nothing to do with numbers. Churches that are running thousands of people every Sunday are languishing. Languishing. What's the picture painted by the psalmist? Then there's the prayer. The prayer for the languishing church. Zion was languishing. Things were bad. And the work of God was suffering greatly. So what does the psalmist do? He prayed. That's what he did. He prayed. He didn't organize a conference. He prayed. He didn't set up a symposium where we could sit in a round table and discuss things about how bad things are in Zion. Didn't organize committees to deal with it. He prayed. But before looking at that that. Very important truth. There's something else that tells us. In fact, all of this tells me two very important things that the languishing church must believe with all of its soul. First, God is the only one who can revive a languishing church. Prayer is made to God, and it's made to God alone, and therefore the psalmist appeals to God alone. God's servants, they may try this or that or other things to bring the church out of a state of spiritual deadness and decline, but the only one who can awaken the church when she's asleep is the Lord. There's no man that can do that. There's no man that can turn around the situation of a languishing church. No man will ever do it. Never has. Never going to happen. It's God alone who can turn around that situation. If, if the church is going to prosper, 
And to be more pointed, if this church is ever going to prosper, God will have to do it. Or it's not going to happen. Must be convinced of that one. Verse 13, he says, God shall arise and have mercy upon Zion. There it is. It's, a, it's not a good situation. It's languishing. It's bleak. There's desolation. But all that it takes, all that has to happen is for, here's the expression of the psalmist, God to arise. Right? This is poetry. It's getting the picture. It's like all God has to do is stand up. And everything changes. All God has to do is lift his hand. And everything changes. Another psalmist prays that God would pluck his hand from his bosom. It's all you have to do, Lord. But he has to do it. And that's the only thing that will cause Zion to be revived. And if God does not arise, nothing good will happen. It is as Isaac Watts put it in that hymn we Sang earlier, in vain we tune our formal songs. In vain we strive to rise. Hosannas languish on our tongues. And our devotion dies. No minister can revive a languishing church. And we are being very foolish if we think that there is any minister who can revive a languishing church. It's very foolish to look to ministers. They're just mortal. And they're saved sinners like everybody else. They've just been called by God, set apart to preach the word. But they're not omniscient, and they're not infallible, and they're not omnipotent. And you put your eyes upon them, and you're going to find yourself disappointed, and you'll find plenty of ammunition if you want to be critical. Say, this is why the church is languishing. No minister can do that. The people can't revive it. If all of a sudden, you know, everyone connected with this work said, I'm going to bring somebody with me next Sunday. Instantly you have double the numbers. But that doesn't mean there's an end to any languishing. It's not numbers that makes that. People can't revive a languishing church. That doesn't mean that men don't try. Oh my, they they try. All kinds of methods. But it never works. God must arise. Yes, I'll note in a minute, there are means that have to be put to use by men, but all the means of grace, apart from the power, the working, the activity of the Holy Spirit, are totally ineffective to do anything to reverse the situation. You you can take that right on home, right down to a personal level. You can read your Bible all you want, and you can pray hours on end. But if the Holy Ghost is not working in the means, the means are useless. 
they are powerless. It's the Holy Spirit that gives them power. It's the Holy Spirit. I mean, how many people do you think sit under a preaching every Sunday and hear the Word being preached and nothing changes? It doesn't phase them. The behavior goes on and on and on and on. The, 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 the Sunday school teacher or the minister delivered the truth accurately, handled it well, made the application, drove it home, but that child of God who was languishing just kept on languishing. Hey, one thing, when the Holy Ghost works with power, makes all the difference in the world when you read your Bible and when you pray and when you hear the preaching of God's Word. If, if, if the conversion of sinners is part and parcel, and it is, it's shown this throughout church history. If the conversion of sinners is part and parcel to the reviving of the church, the prospering of the church is languishing, isn't God the only one who can perform the work of conversion? If the Holy Ghost does not regenerate, there is no conversion. If holy living is part and parcel to the reviving and prospering of the languishing church, isn't God the only one who can rise up and build up and edify his people in their most holy faith? If there's one truth that the languishing church in any age needs to understand and believe and embrace is the truth that she needs the Lord to arise. If that is one truth I would want to ring in your ears when I'm long gone, we need the Lord to arise here. And nothing else will do. It won't be a new pastor. It won't just be new people new programs. I'll tell you now, it won't work. The Lord must arise. And you must be convinced of that. Spurgeon said this one day to his own congregation. What, this, this is the error of Spurgeon, the height of his preaching, what our churches need just now is not simply men of God, but we need more of God's own presence and power in our midst. We think we have our God among us, but I fear we have not so much of His presence as our forefathers used to have. And if he could say that of his day, they had not as much presence of God as their forefathers. Believe you me that it would be doubly true, triply true of our day. It's true, the churches are springing up everywhere. Bringing in hundreds and thousands of people. Campuses, they're called now. Satellite churches. They're so big they can't meet in one place. Millions upon millions pouring into church coffers. World evangelistic efforts seem to be taking place on a scale that the world's never seen before. But where, I ask you, where is the power of God's presence in the church. Where is that? Are we actually going to say, well, there it is. It's in all these people coming. It's in seeing the places filled. Is that, is that the token? Is that the evidence of the power of God? 
Is that the token of God's presence? Surely you know it's not. If it's true, as some maintain, that my, the presence of God is felt in the church today, the church isn't languishing, then I ask the question, where in the world is the holiness, where is the separation from the world and sin that would always and has always marked the people of God when He has arisen and revived and restored and refreshed? I mean, there's so much change that takes place. One of the great reasons I would give you, if you have not done, to get your hands on accounts of past revivals and see how it affected the people of God in their everyday life. What they talked about, what interested them, where they went, where they didn't go, what they stopped doing and what they started doing. Where's the fire? Where's the, where's the great zeal? The burning. The, the fire that lights the, lights the heart and, and uh, gives that energy to burn out for the Lord. I don't see it. An old hymn, I forget the lady's name, but I remember the line. Lord, don't let me rust out, let me burn out for thee. I I think there's a whole lot more rust than there is fire, than there is burning. Where are the great prayer meetings that have always marked the church when she's enjoying the presence of God in her midst? When God arises, where are they? Where is the wrestling, the pleading, the passion, the tears, the sobbing. I mean, let's be honest, if you walked into a prayer meeting and and heard the people of God sobbing their eyes out for the Lord to bless them, to come down among them, weeping for lost sinners, pouring their hearts out. I dare say you would think that's strange. At least different. But it's not strange because that's the one of the ways in which the presence of God is manifested in His church. Her praying has power. So this psalmist realizes that all will be well if the Lord will just arise. It, it, it's it's the realization of that truth that brings me to my second truth that the church must believe with all of its soul. Not only must she believe that God alone is the only one who can give the remedy to the languishing church, but prayer is the key. 
to reviving the languishing church. According to his own words, when he was afflicted and overwhelmed, he poured out his complaint to the Lord. And it's significant that in the context of, of, of Zion experiencing the Lord's favor, that the psalmist says in verse 17, He will regard the prayer of the destitute and not despise their prayer. That verse tells me that not only that God doesn't despise the prayers of His people who are in the languishing church, who are part of the languishing church, who feel their own souls are languishing. Rather, He takes pleasure and delights in the prayers of His people, whether or not they're languishing when they're praying for the revival and the refreshing showers that fall upon His work. It's not get yourself fixed up first, you know, deal with the languishing spirit, and then the Lord will listen. He says He will hear the prayer of the destitute, the barren. And so the greatest and best thing we can do is to set ourselves is to pray that God will arise and have mercy, just like this psalmist did on the church, on this church, and favor his work with his presence. Surely, brothers and sisters, there is a difference between the omnipresence of God and the promise that he's in the midst of the twos and the threes, which I claim continually. And this manifestation of his presence in the church, there's a big difference. Oh, the Lord is here tonight. He said he would be. You got more than two or three. But when the Lord arises, when he plucks his hand from his bosom, when he walks in the midst of his people, when he comes down in power to his church, it would be far, far different than what we're experiencing. Prayer is the key. The hardest thing to do, I find, is to believe in the power of prayer when your circumstances tell you that it's pointless to pray, when you conclude that your situation is hopeless. It's really hard to believe in the power of prayer from that perspective. Allow me to remind you tonight of a man by the name of Ezekiel. God put him down in the midst of a valley, a valley full of dry bones. And the Holy Ghost says the bones were very dry. And God asks one question, Son of man, can these bones live? I can't imagine a more hopeless situation than a valley full of dry bones. And the question being asked, can they live? Well, Ezekiel knew. Well, knowest. If you want them to live, they will live. But you have to do it. God told him, therefore, to pray to the wind. Pray to the wind, he said. Pray to the Holy Spirit, Ezekiel. And he did. And that valley was transformed to an exceeding great army. From old dry dead bones. It was hopeless from the human standpoint. But that prophet prayed. And it changed everything. Elijah was told to pray for rain when there had been a drought for three years running. 
He prayed, and the rain fell in buckets. But I'm not Elijah, you say. I, I, I know, neither am I. He was a giant. But the point James makes about Elijah is not his greatness. It was that he was a man subject to like passions as we are. He had highs and lows. He had ups and downs. Times of great faith and times of great unbelief. Times of great joy, times of deep depression. That was Elijah. But James says he prayed. And he shut the heavens and he prayed again. And the rains fell. It was to prayer. In hopeless situations. Our feebleness. Our feebleness and our extreme circumstances are no reason for not praying. And that's exactly what Satan would want you to believe. The situation is no, so bad, there's no point in praying about it. And Satan laughs up his sleeve. You see, the fact of the matter is, because the situation is desperate, you need to pray. It calls for prayer. The Lord made it abundantly clear in His Word that prayer, persevering prayer, believing prayer is the key. One divine said, All the glorious things which shall be done for the church of God will be in consequence of their prayers. All the glorious things which shall be done for the church of God shall be in consequence of their prayers. So, so the question is, is, there, is it any wonder that the church is languishing when her prayer meetings have just about died out altogether? Is it any wonder? It's the least attend. if there's even a church that has one, it's the least attended meeting of the church. Yet, yet, yet the Lord says it's the key. The prayer meeting. Not the, not the Bible class. Not listening to the sermons. But the prayer meeting of God's people. And so you will find out as you, I'm sure will take my advice like you always do and start reading on revivals and you'll find out they began they began with prayer meetings little tiny things just one or two people praying sometimes it was children just children the Holy Ghost empowered them to pray and that was the start in to lead into the presence of God coming down upon a languishing church and reviving it I think there's a whole lot of apathy when it comes to the church prayer meeting. God's people just don't want to pray. There's a great backwardness to prayer, a great backwardness. And that shouldn't be when the Lord has made it so clear You seek and you'll receive. You persevere and I'll give it you. You cry unto me with all your heart and you'll find. But when you don't believe that, you don't pray. So wouldn't, it, wouldn't the cry, the cry that needs to go up to the Lord, Lord, stir me up to pray. 
do whatever it takes, but stir me to pray. I'm not asking you, Lord, just to stir me to have devotions. I'm asking you, Lord, to stir my soul to pray and to wrestle with you to favor Zion once again to come down upon this church. That brings me to the prospect, finally, for the languishing church, the prospect for the church that prays. There's the future for that church. For the church that prays, in spite of how long she has languished or how deep the decline, there is a great prospect. Thou shalt arise and have mercy on Zion for the time to favor her. Yea, the set time, the fixed time, the appointed time is come. Now I say that's a tremendous prospect. All of those things we saw pictured in the languishing church are going to be reversed. No longer is there leanness or bareness under the means of grace, but there is great fruitfulness. The lukewarmness disappears. Now there is passion. Now there is zeal. The deadness and the dullness is replaced with a, with a brightness, you know, a brightness in Christian living. Unbelief is overcome by a vibrant faith. Dejection and dis- discouragement and despair are, are replaced with joy and with light and hope. The gospel has given great success in conversions and driving out the worldliness from God's people. That's the prospect. For an individual believer who languishes, and that's the prospect for a church that is languishing. It's the same. I don't want you to miss, however, what gave the psalmist the indication that it was time for God to arise in favor of Zion. Again, verse 14. It's time, the set time has come, for because thy servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. Whoever wrote this psalm, whether it was Ezra or Nehemiah or Daniel or whoever, the statement that's being made is that they took more pleasure. They took more pleasure in the stones and the rubbish and the dust of the streets of Jerusalem than all of the stately palaces of Babylon. They are taking pleasure in her stones. This was the evidence to the mind of the psalmist that God was about to visit his people. He was about to move. This was like that blowing the top of the mulberry trees, stirring. I see, I see a change in the people. They don't despise the stones that are on heaps. They don't despise the dust. No, not at all. They take pleasure. he, He knew that was not normal. The people of God in their captivity began to look with, with a deep interest in the very ruins because they wanted to see Zion built again. They didn't despise the rubbish, all the work that would be there. No, it's Zion. It's God's dwelling place 
We take pleasure in them. We want to see it built again. That's what encouraged the psalmist to believe that God was about to favor it with his presence. Things were going to change. What's the spiritual and practical application of these historical facts and the Jews so long ago? It's simply this. There are indicators that the season of languishing of a church or even of an individual child of God is coming to an end and there is a reviving that is about to take place when certain things begin to happen. It will be evidenced by an increased attention among the Lord's people to this whole matter of the church needing to be revived. Sadly, we're living at a time when that in so many quarters is not even on the radar screen. Or if it's understood, then it's rejected. Revival? That's all superstitious, hocus-pocus, emotional nonsense. That's tragic. But when the Lord's about to move, there is an interest as these people, an interest in the work of God being restored and revived from its declining state. It'll be evidenced by a growing awareness and concern for the desolation and the coldness of the church, for the sin that is prevailing and the worldliness that's come in like a flood. It will be a place where you just don't want to tolerate it anymore. One of the things that Washer brings out as far as the ten indictments against the church is the absolute failure to discipline Christians. It's avoided like a plague because you don't want to upset the apple cart. I think the present day church in this land would be absolutely appalled for how the early church dealt with worldliness amongst its members. Appalled. When that attitude changes, you know something's astir. Someone is astir, and that's the Lord. The Lord's people will also begin to look with interest, real heart interest on the very things that they had lost interest in, the things that they had neglected. And of course, they'll stop neglecting the prayer meeting. Because now they're convinced that the only way things are going to change is going to be by God answering prayer. The communion table will not be ignored. It won't be seen as an option. I can skip. The sanctuary and the worship that takes place on the Sabbath day will become so important and you know what? Any old excuse not to come will not do. Isn't it interesting that the excuses that so often are given for not coming to church don't work the other six days of the week? They don't seem to apply. Just on Sunday it happens. When the believer is in a languishing state, that all changes when God arises. 
everything, everything involving the work of the Lord becomes an issue of real concern and interest. They were, they were really concerned about pleasure in the stones, the dust. So insignificant, huh? Think about all the little things connected with this work. There's a lot of them. How when the Lord arises, those things aren't viewed as insignificant, unimportant. But it's part of God's work. This is the prospect. It's not just the prospect that was held out for, for the Jews so long ago. It's the prospect that's held out for this church. Pastors will come and go. But the work of God goes on. May the Lord use His word this evening. to take this work forward. May God arise. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's seek the Lord. Father in heaven, thou art the only one who can make this message live, live on beyond the close of this meeting. We're not ignorant that Satan has a plan to snatch away the truth fill our minds with all kinds of things that would compel us to forget all about it. The Lord, we pray against him, and we pray unto thee that thou wilt arise and favor Zion. Have mercy, Lord, have mercy. We admit that we're sinners. We still sin. We grieve the Spirit. But Lord, Thou knowest how much we need Thee. We cannot do. We will languish apart from Thine own hand at work. So Lord, pluck Thy hand from Thy bosom, we pray. Arise and scatter Thine enemies. and favor Zion once again as thou hast in former times. Breathe, O Holy Spirit, upon us. Do that stirring that can only come by thee. And we pray all of this in the Savior's name. Amen and amen.